0: Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's program all about the built environment. I'm your host, Carlotta Ribello. Coming up.
1: Arts change the way we think, the way in which we view the world, and the way in which we tap our potential for creativity and innovation. So if you want to look at the underlying motivation behind the creation of arts districts, I believe that's it.
0: How are our education institutions supporting arts in the community? Today, we investigate a new trend emerging in the designs of universities around the United States, which set aside the usual focus on districts dedicated to technical education and zeroes in on arts and culture. So, how can on-campus neighbourhoods devoted to the arts bring about a better result for the city as a whole? And while we're on the topic of education, we find out what lessons city planners can take from nature as we speak to an expert in biomimicry. That's coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Carlotta Ribello. So welcome to this week's programme. So-called innovation districts have been all the rage on university campuses across the United States over the past few years. These areas focus on STEM subjects and the technical side of education, but can often provide little to the wider communities around them. One trend that is starting to pick up steam in the US is the Arts District, dedicated to culture with theatres, art galleries and performing arts spaces. These not only offer facilities for education, but allow the general public to participate too. And as such, they're igniting the cultural communities in surrounding urban areas. Universities are even placing these districts on their front doorsteps to better allow city dwellers to benefit. Well earlier this shows regular host Andrew Tuck, caught up with Graham Wyatt a partner at Robert A. M. Stern Architects who directs the design of academic buildings campus plans and corporate headquarters around the world. Andrew began by asking Graham to tell us a little about the growing trend for art districts and the shift that has occurred in the way we view the art sector.
1: Well I think that there's been a basic change in the way in which people view the arts and that in the past arts and artistic endeavors honestly, were seen as a little bit of a fringe set of disciplines. Musicians, visual artists, actors were seen as participants in something that was at once a little bit marginal and maybe a little bit exotic or luxurious. And they weren't always seen as being central to the educational mainstream. And increasingly, these perceptions, in my opinion, are changing. And now you have computer scientists who are studying the visual arts, or you have football players who study dance. There's a demonstrated and strong correlation between musical ability and academic success. So suddenly there's strong evidence that participating in the arts makes all of us better at what we do. And arts change the way we think, the way in which we view the world, and the way in which we tap our potential for creativity and innovation. So if you want to look at the underlying motivation behind the creation of arts districts, I believe that's it.
2: Does it also play into this, the idea that if you're a competitive university, you're looking for the best students, you you want to attract people, that actually the arts is a good calling card. I I look in London here, which isn't an academic campus, but when I look at the campuses being created by some of the tech companies here in the city, they like to be... Adjacent to the arts, because you know their staff m- may be coding during the day or they may be looking at algorithms. But when they step out of the front door, they want to feel that they're immersed in a city, and the culture of a city is really important in that.
1: Yes, I think there's definitely that component that there is an artistic draw for people who are educated and ambitious, and I say that in a positive way. I also think though that, There is this general understanding now that arts and creativity are essential to so many disciplines other than the ones that have been thought of traditionally as artistic and creative. And so there's a real educational benefit to having people who are computer scientists or biotechnologists exposed to the arts and not able to simply participate as spectators but also to actively participate themselves in the arts.
2: Now, what's interesting in two of the projects that you're involved in at Ohio State University and at Notre Dame, that the arts districts are really at the front of the campus. They're the front door in a way that you come through. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing and, and how that positioning came about?
1: Well, let's take them one at a time. At the Ohio State University, the main entrance, the gateway to the campus, had in the past been a bit decrepit and had not received the campus planning attention that it really justified. And the university and their wisdom, and we worked with them closely on this, saw that placing the arts there would send a powerful message about the importance of the arts at the Ohio State University, but it would also give them a level of public participation that perhaps they hadn't been able to achieve before and public engagement is really essential in these arts districts so people who think of themselves as artists should be drawn in not just as spectators but as participants as i said a moment ago and also the public provides the audience which is essential to the arts so at the ohio state university we worked with them to plan an entire district which includes a new home for the School of Music, the Department of Theater, and new media. There is the Wexner Center for the Arts located there, a cartoon museum, a home for the dance program. And all of these are located right at the front door so that members of the outside surrounding community can participate in the arts as much as students on the campus can.
2: Graham, just on that, just tell me the traditional campus is a strange thing because it provides a safe space for students, and for academic life, and even in dense cities, I'm always struck by sometimes how there's no fence, there's no wall, but there feels like to be an invisible barrier around many campuses. You know, we have it here in in Central London. We have the University of London. And it's funny, when I I walk home, I can walk through the campus to do a shortcut to my house. But many people seem to walk around the edge of it. It's like it, it somehow rebuffs people. Is the Arts District, again, an interesting thing that, as you say, it breaks down this divide between the city and the students and the academic life, Not totally, but just enough for them to interact in more interesting ways. Considered
1: successfully, I think it should do exactly that. And that there is a tradition, certainly there's a strong tradition in the United States of the academic campus being a place apart. Some of the earliest campuses, University of Virginia was founded by Thomas Jefferson or Harvard, specifically moved out of the city to protect their students from the evils of urban living and they were seen as places apart. Campus means field. And it was a term that was first applied to an academic campus in North America. So there's a strong tradition of the campus being separate and being walled. And arts districts are fighting against that, I think in a very positive way, to bring members of the surrounding community onto the campus, to get students off campus, and to have them interact and meet each other around the arts.
2: And tell me, where does that push and pull come from? Do you think it's from the student body itself? Do you think it's from the city that doesn't want to see the campus set apart? What, what are the, the social shifts that are happening that's encouraging people to blur the edges around the campus, as it were?
1: I think it comes from both sides. But I think specifically in the arts, it really does come from the need to have an audience, And to have broad public participation, you're not successful as an artist unless you're engaging people in the thought process of what you do, in the performance or in the sculpture or the painting, so that surrounding community is essential to the work that you're doing.
2: And tell me, with the people who now come and call to see you, you've worked on numerous academic projects across your career of different scales and all across the country. Apart from the shift towards the arts, how are you seeing the demands of campuses changing?
1: Well, there is a far greater pressure towards specificity in building design that used to be that a university could be housed in a single building. And again, in the United States, there's a strong tradition of Old Main. Old Main was the main building, single building campus building that had classrooms and maybe some laboratories and students lived there and it was all in a single building and now that's quite changed in their residence halls that are separate from administrative buildings that are separate from classroom buildings and there's a huge distinction between science buildings and buildings for the humanities so there is this great pressure for specificity what that tends to do is that it tends to silo people so that scientists end up being with scientists and people in the humanities end up being with people in the humanities. And arts districts,
2: if they're properly considered, helped break all of that down. It's interesting, because again, I come back to examples that I'm seeing in cities when I travel around that life sciences or science parks in the past were often on greenfield sites, erected way out of town. They're also coming into town these days, again, because the scientists don't want to be dislocated from the the life of a city. So what's the priority? What's the pecking order when people come to you now? Because I'm sure that many of these people have innovation districts, they have life sciences, they have the arts. How do people decide what's at the front of their campus? What is the calling card to the city?
1: Well, first I should say that we're very lucky that we work in all of these various different building types. So we really do see each of them and we have a sense as a result of that, of how they can interrelate with each other. And so one of the things that we are seeing that we've touched on already is the placing the arts at the front door. The other thing that we're definitely seeing is mixed use developments at the front door. So the main entrance to a campus is blurring that campus edge distinction that you spoke about a moment ago, and that there will be some private sector functions that are accommodated there in the same way that there will be academic and teaching and learning functions. So there would be shops and restaurants and food and beverage and hotels along with classrooms and studios and performance venues. That kind of dynamism that comes from that kind of mix is seen as being really beneficial.
0: Graham White there in conversation with Andrew Tuck. Up next, we look at the design and planning lessons we can get from nature. Stay with us. Now, before any of our cities had mastered a transport system or perfectly designed a public square or department store, nature was creating its own miraculous ecosystems. So what sort of tricks and tips could we learn from the natural world in the way we structure our man-made systems to better improve their efficiency and help them harmonize with their environment? Biomimicry is a field that learns from the strategies of nature and mimics them in order to solve design challenges in the human world. Questions around housing shortages, slow commutes and climate challenges could all be answered by paying attention to the ways nature reacts to similar issues. Jimmy Miller is the Director of Biomimicry at BH Architects, and he joined Monocle's David Stevens a little earlier to discuss his work, as well as a new plan for a community of 67 off grid, net zero prefabricated homes in Augusta Township in eastern Ontario, in conjunction with a housing fabricator's cabin. David began by asking what being the Director of Biomimicry at BH Architects actually involves.
3: I bring the lens of biomimicry to their suite of services, whether it's interior design, architecture, master planning, advanced strategy. The idea is that we want to leverage and harness the genius of nature to solve some of the challenges that we face, recognizing that nature does design, it does it really well, and often will solve problems, the same problems that we're wrestling with in more elegant, sustainable, and efficient ways.
4: And so are there maybe some examples of things we we wouldn't have known are actually a result of kind of watching and observing what nature does already in the built environment that you could point out.
3: I mean, the most classic example that I use is Velcro. A lot of people forget that Velcro was inspired by burrs that stuck to your pants. It was invented in the 1940s by George de Maistrell, a Swiss engineer who kind of got fed up with those burrs sticking to his dog and to his pants and took his frustration into fascination to emulate that hooking mechanism. Which became the, you know, one of the most successful adhesives of our time in Velcro. In architecture, there's many examples like Antonio Gaudi's church in Barcelona, Spain has lots of biomimetic kind of principles, looking at tree structures, looking at spirals. There's a building in Harare, Zimbabwe called the Eastgate building that emulated termite mounds to create a passive cooling effect in the building, which allowed that building to have no HVAC system and actually save $3.5 million by doing so. So There are many examples of biomimicry out in the world. For thousands of years, we as a species have looked to nature for design, and that was really brought to light with the indigenous elders that I work with, specifically one who's become a good friend of mine, Jeannie Becker. And Jeannie, when she learned about biomimicry, said, well, we've been doing biomimicry for thousands of years. So I think it's important to recognize that biomimicry is not a new idea. Biomimicry is a new term for a very old idea that we've been looking to nature for a long time but why it's so special and important today is that we as a species have kind of deviated from the rest of the natural world. We've become quite different, which is interesting, and we've become quite destructive. And so in trying to find our way back, we're looking for those metaphors, those paradigms that can help us get back on track. And there's no greater model of sustainability than nature. And in my mind, there's no more comprehensive tool to emulate that genius than biomimicry. So I think it's a really opportune time to see biomimicry come to
4: light, to be driving our designs. And what about when we talk about the world of planning? A couple of things maybe come to mind as you're speaking there. The classic idea of desire paths, you know, people taking the route that they want to take and then planners then following that route later. Another thing that was in the news recently was they recreated the Tokyo metro system with bacteria and they found the paths that ended up being quite similar to the paths of the metro are there ways that kind of planning can also watch what nature does and kind of continue along that line to improve how spaces are used yeah exactly those
3: two examples are great so if you look in a forest you know a real wild forest you'll see game trails which are those trails that the larger animals will follow and often you know they're pretty efficient they'll follow the path you know of least resistance similar to rivers any flow and fluid dynamics Um, And the example you talk about is slime mold, where they put slime mold over top of the Japanese transportation system to see how slime mold would reorient and create the most efficient pathways throughout an area. So, there are many ways of using biomimicry in the planning sphere. The way that we approach it is what we call systems level biomimicry. And what that means is that we're trying to understand their deeper principles. We use a more holistic, systemic approach at looking at planning, and we're letting nature lead in everything that we do. So, what that means is we try to understand what nature wants to do, what nature will permit us to do, and what nature will support us in doing. The idea is that if you left a natural system B, it would go towards a certain trajectory, it would move in a certain way. And we want to understand that movement. We want to understand that trajectory so that we can more strategically put infrastructure in places that will work in harmony with nature. So, we as a species have become quite clever in that we've been able to manipulate, dictate, and engineer our environments. We've been able to harness stored energy and fire, make new materials. Re-engineer our environments and even resist and fight nature, but we're seeing that that can be incredibly costly. This idea of designing for hundred-year storm events is getting thrown out the window as we have those hundred-year storm events happening, you know, every five years, every ten years. And every time we try to fight nature, we know it's expensive. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of maintenance. And so, instead of trying to fight nature, our whole philosophy is: how do we fit in with nature? And in order to do that, you have to understand where nature wants to go. You have to let nature lead we'll often say, we're trying to dance with nature and nature's in the lead. So practically, we'll look at major change features like overland flow and water. We'll look at fluid modeling on the site. We'll look at different ecosystems and their resilience, and we'll look at something called patch dynamics. So we'll take a large landscape and narrow it down and focus in on multiple patches, seeing the whole landscape as a mosaic of unique little clusters and modules of ecosystems. And then we'll identify what each of those clusters wants to do. Some might be more attuned to putting agriculture or growing things. Some might be more attuned to putting large infrastructure. Some might be already doing water management. And so what if we leverage that ecological service? We're trying to understand that landscape so that we can put infrastructure that works in harmony and that contributes to it. So one of the key philosophies that drive all of our planning is that we're not trying to do less harm. We don't believe in this idea that humans are a bad species. We're just a young one and we need to learn how to reintegrate ourselves into the landscape. So everything that we do is in an attempt to be a contribution. You know, we believe that our breath feeds trees, our bodies feed soil. What if our buildings could feed an ecosystem? And to give you a quick example, we're working with the Métis Nation of Alberta and they're doing a 618 acre cultural center. We'll call it Métis Crossing. And it's this beautiful place where they're reintegrating Metis culture, they're showcasing and highlighting the Metis culture. And they've also they're building the infrastructure to house thousands of people. So when we did the living story, we identified, you know, overland flow and we looked at the water patterns. We looked at future storm events. We projected climate change events. And we identified that there's a certain area that's going to, you know, have increased flooding, higher saturation rates in the soil. And that was where some of the buildings were being proposed. So we just simply asked them to, you know, reevaluate. And they're also planning a road that was going to sever this really important soil, really healthy soil that would sever the connections between the forests on both sides, understanding mycelium and understanding how trees talk and communicate through underground networks. We wanted to ensure that those systems were not severed so that the forest could work together and continue to maintain resilience through their connection. So simple things like that allowed us to just put infrastructure in certain places that uh, were more of a contribution or weren't fighting the natural responses to that land.
4: One of the examples of us being a a young species who's kind of learning as we go is that the human species can't quite seem to house people particularly well. And that side of things brings me onto a a project you're doing in Augusta. Can you tell us a little bit about that project?
3: Yeah, the Augusta Township Project is a really interesting one where we've partnered with a company called Cabin. And so Cabin has developed this technology of an off-grid prefabricated home, you know, very beautiful cabin that they can put up in a couple of days really, and it's fully off-grid, so it's fully self-sustainable in terms of its energy production. And they wanted to take this singular technology and apply it to master planning. So in partnership with Augusta Township, we helped develop a plan for them that was based on this living story methodology that used biomimicry in the planning strategy. And that's resulted in this, you know, really beautiful and, and really powerful planning example.
4: Can you tell us a couple of the examples that you put into this project, some good examples of how your work played into this?
3: I think going back to the living story, one of the key things is that we put the infrastructure, we proposed the infrastructure in areas that were going to be a contribution. So we left a large chunk of the forest and we put the buildings in areas that were a little bit more disturbed already we identified key ecological services like this river system running through it, the swamp. We looked at the topography. And by doing this living story analysis, we've actually seen that the approval process for this plan has gone much quicker because the studies that were required kind of were breezed through the environmental studies, the traffic studies, the things that we already thought of by you know really working with the land instead of trying to fight it. We've been able to improve or speed up the approval process. Another example is that Instead of a traditional kind of cookie cutter plan, we designed it in clusters. So these clusters are a group of eight cabins that all face inwards, recognize that these cabins also have to orient themselves to the sun, making sure that they can maximize their solar gain. So we had to you know, play with the orientation, but we we're able to do that and have all the cabins facing inwards so that there's this public amenity in the middle. That was shared amongst those different cabins and that was owned by each of the the different clusters where they could do with whatever they want if they want to put a fire oven or they want to put a some planters for gardening put a playground you know make it really unique but these clusters were also interconnected through pedestrian pathways so there's multiple clusters and we really you know were are inspired by ants ants are incredibly resilient and yet they have no hierarchy there's no one ant telling the rest of the ants what to do. And part of their resilience actually comes from communication. They'll use pheromones, sense to communicate to other ants where there's food, where there's opportunities, where there's danger. But also whenever they pass each other, they hit their antennae. And that quick antennae touch gives them a brief check-in. And this was part of the inspiration is we wanted these small clusters to be interconnected to the other clusters And we connected them through this pedestrian pathway, this open space, so that you can have these collision centers. So you can walk through and connect with the other clusters, the other neighbors, have a check-in point, make sure everyone's good. But we're really trying to emulate that ant resiliency. We wanted these communities to be socially, economically, and ecologically resilient. And a part of that is through this communication. And this whole site is pedestrian-friendly. We actually designed the road systems on the outside, And we have consolidated parking spots so that you can, you know, park your car. It's all in walkable distance to the clusters. Each cluster has their own, you know, unique parking. But the idea is to make this pedestrian friendly so that you have these connection points.
4: Right. You're almost designing for chance. You're trying to make these chance moments happen so that people can share information or can share goods or advice or anything like that. You're trying to make sure that people cross paths so that they can kind of get this information across. Is that right? That's correct. And a part of the cluster is that nature
3: maintains resilience through decentralization and redundancy. So each of these clusters can, you know, have their own food production, they have their own energy generation, because all of the cabins are collecting solar energy, you know, they have their own unique values, but they're all interconnected, just like nature is a mosaic of patches. Like I said, each patch is unique, but it's all interconnected and working together in this beautiful harmony.
4: And maybe finally, you know, we look at this as tackling the housing crisis. Do you think there's lessons here that can be taught to really dense urban centers and urban centers that are maybe dealing with homelessness and things like that? Are there some lessons you're hoping that can go a bit further than this specific application?
3: Yeah, I think one of the philosophies we we're using in making these small clusters was that there's research that shows that above 150 people in a community, you start to lose track to that social fabric that social interconnectedness if you think of old villages you know there's such resilience we grew up in the country and my grandpa would tell me stories that if a barn burnt down there were no calls made everyone just showed up the next day they were working on that barn and that's in large part because these small villages were not so dense not so overly populated that you knew what was going on so this is part of the philosophy that we are bringing is that These smaller clusters allow you to know what's going on so that if something bad happens, you're quick to respond, you know what's going on. And the more we densify, the more we lose that. You know, in these dense cities, you start to lose that connection, that social fabric with the larger community. It's almost too much for our brains to handle because it's so much complexity. There's so much to worry about. And it actually inadvertently makes us think more about ourselves and turns us inwards. So a part of our whole design philosophy is how do you reconnect with your neighbors? And that's what that cluster does. And that's what that cluster kind of encourages. So for those people who have housing issues or are struggling with mental health, this cluster is a model for that. I mean, I'll talk to the technology as well. The cabin team has figured out a way of manufacturing these using all local materials, using local labor. They can package it up in a shipping container and build it quite quickly, which has really improved the economic efficiencies of these, made these beautiful homes very affordable. The other thing too is that, you know, in affordability and affordable housing, part of the problem is having these diversity of rooms or technologies and making sure that there's access to the same things to everyone. So there isn't this created hierarchy and jealousy or, or this infighting. So Cabin has done a great job in their technology to make sure that every single model, whether it's a one bedroom to a four bedroom has all the same amenities, all the same technologies and is manufactured with that efficiency. The other thing about our plan, though, is we also created enough space for each lot to have additional rental units or affordable rental units so that you can have a backyard bachelor cabin or one bedroom cabin. We also designed it so that there were community cabins, which were owned by nobody, that you could rent out if you have grandparents coming or if you have somebody that needs to stay for a little while. These community cabins are these amenities that were publicly owned and available to multiple people. So those are some of the strategies we started to think about and incorporate for affordability, including cabins technology, which has started to play with the affordability and and improving housing prices by improving the process of housing construction.
0: Jamie Miller from B plus H Architects, speaking there with Monocle's David Stephens. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. You can also join us from August 31st in Munich for Monocle's annual Quality of Life conference. This year's edition has a special focus on topics relevant to our urban environment and you can view the programme and secure your ticket by heading over to conference.monocle.com. Today's show was produced by me, Carlotta Rubello, and by David Stevens, and David also edited the show. To play you out this week, here's a cinematic orchestra with lessons. Thank you for listening, city lovers.